Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and body work community enlivening content that advances our profession. And you can check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners can save 15% by entering Thinking at checkout. Till, we have another uh, leadoff sponsor today in addition to Books of Discovery. And who is that? That's that's actually me. Uh, you and I, All are right. gonna be, yeah, we're going to be sponsoring your own podcast. So I'm I'm on my own sponsor today. And the thing I want to talk about is our spine, ribs, and low back principles training. We've been teaching a bunch of these online, kind of hybrid online trainings now ever since, well, for the last three years, since the lockdowns began. And they really had a chance to evolve. And I'm so happy with the shape they've taken. So myself and five members of my faculty are going to be walking small groups of people through our uh, which typically a two-day in-person course, but we stretch it out over two months when we meet every two weeks and go through the material together. It gives you the balance of self-paced learning with small group cohorts uh, with me personally and with my faculty personally, so I hope you can join us. Check that out. That starts uh, April 17th. Check it out at advanced-trainings.com or in the show notes. How'd I do, Whitney? That was ab uh, absolutely awesome. So thank you so much for that, sharing that with us. And my we first... have a guest with us today. Oh, yeah, we do. We have a guest. She's been so patiently waiting as I do my first <laughs> ever self-sponsorship. Jill Miller, you are here with us, and I am so happy about that. Your bio, let me, let me read that first before I give you a chance to talk. Your bio says you have 30 years of corrective movement expertise that forges links between the worlds of yoga, massage, athletics, and pain management. Your self-care fitness programs, yoga tune-up, and role model are found in gyms, yoga studios, hospitals, athletic training facilities, and corporations worldwide. You are also the former anatomy columnist for Yoga Journal. Really cool. You've been featured in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Shape, Women's Health, Oh, the Today Show, and our contributing expert on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Your new book, Body by Breath, The Science of Practice uh, Science and Practice of Physical and Emotional Resilience, will be published this month, which is currently February 2023. You live in LA with your husband, two kids, and a rescue dog, which I also have a rescue dog. So that's where that's the moment I could relate to your bios. And you've done so much that I get the dog part. It's so nice to have you here with us. Uh, I hope there's other relatable things besides my dog. Uh, I mean, I, I related so. when you announced your rib course, I, I'm like, that sounds so cool. I want to do it. Yeah. Well, I'm just so impressed by, I, you know, I met you, I knew you on social media and knew of some of the collaborations you did say with Tom Myers or Kelly Stratt, things like that. And then I met you, Whitney and I met you in the uh, Fascial Research Congress in Montreal in the mm -hmm. last year. 
but is there anything else you want people to know about you before we get into talking about your new book? Oh, no, I'm, I'm an open book. Let's just go for it. I got to ask you a question because I'm curious about this. I had seen this in the in the bio thing. I didn't know this. When were you doing the anatomy um, thing for Yoga Journal? What period, time period was that? Oh, my goodness. Um, I did their anatomy column for about a year. It was well before the pandemic. It was after my first book was published. Uh, it was probably six years ago. Uh huh. Okay. I, yeah. I, if I if I'm sort of carbon dating that, it, it was probably about six or seven years ago. I okay. think. Gosh, guys, I can't remember. Pan I went through a long stretch of of, of reading every issue of Yoga Journal, but this was like in the late '80s or '90s. So I was wondering if it was back that long ago. Um, so, no. Well, yeah. I was. I mean, I. In the late 80s, I was a avid consumer of Yoga Journal magazine. And yeah. Yoga Journal is one of the reasons why I got into yoga as a as a tween. Yeah. Um, it was just like one of the only publications out there that had, you know, consistent information and had it was actually the original founder was a physical therapist. So there was really great stuff in there. Yeah. Was that um, Judith Lassiter? That... Yep, Judith Lassiter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Anyway. Yeah. Well, no, I re I it's, that is interesting, and I relate to more than just your dog. But uh, <laughs> the question, I mean, your your book is gorgeous, and we did. You, you were kind enough to send us advanced copies of it. It's uh, organized. It's thorough. It is, uh, in my opinion, sound in terms of your scientific uh, references and rationales. You do as good a job as any of us that's trying to make that comprehensible to our readers, maybe better than most of us. Uh, but I got a question for you. The first question really is, what uh, question of yours, what question of yours was writing that book the answer to? Hmm. Oh God, there's so many um, beginnings. There's so many origins to why I needed to write this book. Yeah. Um, one really simple answer is my mother. I grew up with an asthmatic mom and I can remember as a young child, ambulances coming to our house and taking her away because she couldn't breathe. And so I learned very early on that without breath, you die. And, um, and so that was, I think, kind of like a core uh, fear. I also saw my grandmother live on oxygen um, and, and die in a terrible way from COPT. Uh, COPD, but actually um, perished from a, a mental health issue um, that was compounded by having to live on oxygen. So um, to put it bluntly, uh, she overdosed um, because she couldn't handle a life chained to a bed, chained to oxygen in her being a mid 60 year old woman. So those were very, very core to my um, interest in breathing, but on a sort of functional level, when I was a young girl, I really wanted to be a singer. Um, that was really the only athletic thing I liked to do. I was not athletic at all. I was quite overweight and I liked playing with my dogs and playing with dolls, but I loved to sing. And there was a, a, a voice teacher in the community we lived in. We lived in a solar community outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's where I um, spent most of my early years. And this voice teacher, I just remember one lesson. One day she told me about the diaphragm. And that was probably when I was in fifth or sixth grade. And it stuck with me. 
And so ever since then, there's been a, a deep interest in, in breathing mechanics. Other origins of this book um, have to do with my own mental health uh, and my spiral into a number of eating disorders as a, a tween uh, all the way till the my early, I guess, late teens or early 20s. I was first anorexic and then I was bulimic and I discovered self-massage in there as a way to uh, connect into myself and begin a process of healing. So deep visceral work, self visceral work, uh, before I knew the term, and now I know all the terms guys, uh, but back then I was just uh, sort of rolling around on a, a towel, rolled up towel on my abdomen and breathing and trying to um, connect with emotions that were buried, stuck, uh, and had really left by the wayside in terms of my own emotional development. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are some of the origins of my own personal story. Yeah. But on the bigger scale, this book had to be written because um, when I wrote my first book, The Role Model, a step-by-step -step guide to, I don't even know the subtitle, it's so long. But anyway, it's a long subtitle uh, that breaks down my, my approach to self-myofascial release work. Um, I had put out a call to action to my students, my followers, and so on, and I asked for their stories. I asked them to share how the role model work had helped them heal um, or deal. And every story that I got back, I got dozens and dozens of unbelievably rich stories. And I thought I'd have, you know, I'd have a rotator cuff story, I'd have a low back pain story, I'd have a knee story, I'd have a foot story, I'd have, you know, a, maybe a cancer story or breathing thing. Every story had a huge emotional component to it. There was a massive amount of data right in front of me about how people were using the balls for emotional regulation, as well as pain mitigation and self-treatment. And I just thought, I need to know why everybody is having this response. It's not just impacting their range of motion, but it's impacting their range of emotion. So what is that thing? Because I know that's what it was for me initially. I wasn't trying to feel my diaphragm. I was trying to feel my feelings while I was rolling around on stuff on my guts. Mm -hmm. So um, that you, was uh, the- Chill, if I can interrupt you yeah. for just a second, for our listeners and people who may not be familiar, can you just give us a brief little synopsis when you talk about balls? Um, and yes. they're, they're so wonderfully illustrated in your book. Just let people know what you're referring to here with this work. Yeah, so I guess we can we can rewind quite a bit, and I can uh, share that I teach people self myofascial release strategies using really my tools, but I'm, I adapt no matter what you have in your house. Yeah, and the tools that I use are a set of grippy, pliable rubber balls. Some of them are solid rubber, and then one is air filled. That's called the gorgeous ball, which features heavily in body by breath. Mm -hmm. um, and so these grippy, pliable rubber balls. Uh, I teach people to map their body and to address aches, pain, mobility issues, and self-regulation through the use of them. Yeah. So that's a, a little summary of Great, that. Great. Thanks. Yeah. And that's, is, thanks, thanks too for your personal context and the story there. I mean, that we all, I think every one of us is in this field has an origin story that's really related to our own challenges, our family's challenges, or the things we've, we've been working on healing, as it were. Uh, who's who's this book for? Well, 
first is for my mom. I would love for my mother to palpate her diaphragm and her intercostals and address ongoing concerns with her neck and her shoulders and her spine as she ages. Um, And so I wrote it in two ways. I wrote it for a general population to be able to grasp the why and how this is important for health and longevity. But I also wrote it for those people's clinicians to think creatively about how and why this type of work impacts health and longevity and well-being um, and ways that they can think about offering their, you know, their own, for their own self-care, but also offering alternatives to just chemical medication or only talk therapy. But maybe there's some other adjuncts that patients or general population with massive amounts of anxiety, depression, um, or the rising trend of long COVID, all of these issues, there can be some very helpful self-management that can work in tandem with their team, um, as well as miraculously eradicate symptoms and issues that other treatments just aren't addressing. Your it's a your book's really practical. You talk people or show illustrate people through specific things they can do with their own body. Yeah, uh, those effects you're talking about are about just feeling more connected or feeling better and all the different dimensions. Is that how present is that in the book? How does that come through? About feeling better in all dimensions. Yeah, about the emotional side of what happens or the personal side as well. Um, well, there's definitely uh, a, there's a couple of chapters that address uh, the nervous system. I try to break it down relatively simply in the beginning, yep. and then yep. get into I would say the a big wrestling match with the vagus nerve and addressing polyvagal theory to um, teach people about different zones of innervation that the vagus spends time in that seem to be in lockstep with different zones of respiration. So in the application of the tools in this book, we tend I tend to focus on three distinct zones in the body. That is the stuff below the rib cage, which I call the subdiaphragmatic region, also known as zone one. I also attempt to help people learn about their thorax, their rib cage, and both the respiratory stuff in there, as well as the nervous system stuff in there, especially as it relates to the vagus and as it relates to sympathetic and parasympathetic, that would be zone two. And then zone three is the supraclavicular zone. That's all the stuff above the the shoulders, right? Neck, face, uh, expression. And so that would, that would, that would be what I call zone three. Um, and there are all also vagus innervations in that same zone. So much of the work is directed towards m- your mapping of these zones and figuring out which zone you tend to live in, you tend to breathe in, or you tend to stiffen, or you tend to defend from the world in. So I break all of that down in terms of the science and then show you different applications to either um, shore up that area or in most cases, release 
different air, different soft tissue regions within that area, different muscles that tend to be kind of a bully to the rest of your body. I hear, I hear in what in your answer here the same voice I read in a book, which is you're laying down a fairly clear technical anatomical uh, territory for us, and then you're inviting us to get in there and explore it and find out what happens. You're giving us a contextualization for this is the part of your body that breathes. This is the part of your nervous system that helps regulate affect. And here's something you can do to experience it and, and uh, play with it. Yeah. I mean, as a yoga therapist, not a mental health professional, I have to be really careful within my own scope of, you know, what, where I'm leading people. And then I offer what is within my scope to offer different mindset strategies. Yeah. Um, to help people pull out their own questions. And then if if stuff comes up, because inevitably when you start unshielding tissues that have been on guard for a long time, for whatever reason, you'll start to feel, you'll start to feel your feels. And sometimes those feelings can feel absolutely unmanageable and overwhelming, but this is not an aggressive, like just throw you to the ground and jujitsu, you know, wrestle you type of wrestle with an implement. This is so slow and tender and progressive and welcoming and alarmingly gently disarming in, in the methodology. Um, I found obviously that that worked for me and in the athlete population that I work with, I work with a lot of athletes that have an enormous amount of, of unknown tension in these different zones. Um, their training habit is usually a pain for gain type of uh, uh, no nuance uh, within application. And so I, I really try to invite what I would call a therapeutic response by exciting the parasympathetic nervous system, bringing the parasympathetic nervous system to the party and helping those folks improve their endurance there, their ability to tolerate being in that slow side of self. Just as you're talking, I'm thinking about breath, of course, and I'm thinking about regulation, and I'm in the experience of speaking to you on Zoom and hanging out with Whitney, and I'm just remembering that this is going on every minute. We're breathing all the time, and our diaphragm is right here with us, and our vagus nerve and all that is right here. Doesn't anyway. that feel great to know it's it's com <laughs> it's coming along with you? Yeah. And, right. uh, or you can manage it. If things are going in a direction, if things are going sideways and you know you actually need to stay a certain course, then you can alter your breath pattern. You can alter your posture. You can alter your environment by palpating yourself in certain ways, or you can change your relationship to gravity and suddenly yes. you have a state change. Yeah. And then we're, we're different. We're showing up differently. We're experiencing things differently. The world even looks different by just changing those things as well. Jill, I'm curious to hear in, you know, a lot of what you've been describing is a really effective self-engaged um, processes for, you know, self-awareness and all that kind of thing. Are there other um, strategies or methods in what you're presenting here that might be used, let's say, in a therapeutic encounter between a you know, a manual therapist and their client person uh, in turn, would it be more like teaching them about 
the awareness and breath and that kind of stuff, or what would be the best way in which, you know, a practitioner might incorporate some of those concepts and ideas? Um, so I think that one of the places to start with that question is, um, have you guys done a podcast on polyvagal theory yet? Nope. Nope. You haven't. Oh, okay. Um, uh, it's, it's a pretty big topic yeah. and, um, it takes, it takes a good, good chunk of time to, um, describe all of the different aspects of it. But the summary of polyvagal theory is that we as organisms, and by the way, polyvagal theory is a theory developed by a neuroanatomist, a sort of multi-hyphenate PhD, Dr. Stephen Porges, mm-hmm. who actually is the first person to ever uh, quantify heart rate variability. And as your listeners probably know, heart rate variability, we have the heart rate variability because we have a vagus nerve that is changing the beat to beat ratios of the heart. And so the health of the vagus nerve and the input of the vagus nerve on the heart is what allows us to slow down. And sometimes it slows us down too much and we pass out. And that can be very problematic, especially if your body um, suddenly does that spontaneously um, when it's under threat. Um, but in terms of, of, of what we can do with, I said I was going to say what the end, end thing of polyvagal theory is, which is that we're designed as organisms to co-regulate one another. We are primates that evolved in clans. We didn't evolve solo. In fact, when we are isolated or when we are solo beings, our our health measures um, dramatically decline. Um, We can survive with another mammal, like a lot of people live alone with their dogs and they do quite well, but we were designed to co-regulate with one another. And so if if you know that, I mean, that's just basic, like, oh, I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better therapist. Well, what what do I need to do inside myself to be in a, in a state of regulation where I can actually offer a, some assistance with regulating my client? And so the book creates a, a cocktail, an inner pharmaceutical cocktail of different ways that you can get in your, get yourself out of an anxiety state or get yourself out of an amplified state that is only going to spin somebody else out so that you can help entrain one another and train can the Can you give us an example of that inner cocktail? Like what's something someone would do? What's the, what's All the right. practical so side of that? In, yeah. in, the, in the book, I discuss what I call the five P's of parasympathetic dominance. And in this case, parasympathetic, parasympathetic dominance, if my intent is to um, get myself into a state where I know that I can be there for someone, that I can be in a state of listening, I can be in a state of receptivity for what they're bringing to the room. The five Ps are, number one is place. So as a practitioner, you probably have a place that is sanctuary-like, is safe for your clients. So place is key. The second is The second piece is perspective. So perspective has to do with mindset. Um, And so that is a top-down suggestion for your own hosting of your embodied experience. So that top-down suggestion could be something uh, as simple as I embody my body, which would put you in your skin, or all of uh, my breath is welcome here. If if you know that I need to focus on my breathing right now because it's a little amped, or in the case of working with somebody else, I am a safe place. 
right? So you can actually put that into your body. I'm a safe place. So you have a top-down suggestion that invites uh, a listening, a deep listening from within, which would be the interoceptive messages that we're going to get when we get into these next three Ps. The next P is position. So position has to do with what can I do to amplify my own implicit relaxation or intrinsic relaxation response. In general, we're going to maximize relaxation by getting low, by getting grounded, by going with gravity. So that is a recline or what I illustrate in the book again and again is this gentle slope position where you're pelvis is slightly higher than your heart, slightly higher than your head, so that you induce the baroceptor reflex. Are your listeners familiar with the baroceptor reflex, or should I define that? Let's define Tell us. it. Yeah. So um, the baroceptor reflex is a total freebie, courtesy of the vagus nerve. So what happens with the baroceptor reflex, as I described, this is a position where your brain is below your heart. So you can do this just by doing a forward bend in your chair or by doing a forward bend with your tush against the wall, leaning over, or you can do it on the ground with your pelvis higher than your heart, higher than your head. I like to put a gorgeous ball underneath my sacrum to do this. What happens is uh, your brain can only manage a set amount of blood flowing in it. And when you go upside down, you're with gravity. And so gravity starts to pull excess blood towards the brain. And as soon as the carotid arteries, or rather as soon as the, the sensors in the carotid arteries, which are sprinkled with little loops of vagus nerve, as soon as they sense that there's a bulging in those arteries, they send a very quick feedback through the vagus to the brainstem that says, uh-oh, too much blood coming? Narrow, narrow, slow heart rate, slow breath rate. So all of your arteries constrict so that the blood flow in your brain is regulated. And that will slow down your breathing and it'll slow down your heart rate. And it's, you know, it happens in my classroom all the time. I tell people they come in, they're, chit they're chit chatting or they're sitting up, they're talking to each other. The class starts recline. Within 15 to 20 seconds, you just start to hear, you just start to hear these sudden exhales coming out of people's bodies because number one, their postural muscles are no longer holding them, but also just that shift, that gravitational shift starts to induce the relaxation response for them. So um, you can get I'm picturing my dog, I'm picturing my dog lying down and then that big dog sigh they do once they settle in. They're so cute. And then they start to have the little dreams and the little lips start to da -da 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 -da. Does that happen in your classes too? When I do lead yoga nidras or non-sleep deep breaths, yes, yes, people go out. They it's like a horse tranquilizer. Okay, so we've got the place. We've excuse me. We've got place. We've got perspective. We've got position. The fourth variable uh -huh. in the in the five P scenario is pace of breath. So pace of breath is a huge variable that I tackle within the book, and that is in general. If you exhale longer than you inhale, you'll induce a relaxation response for you. And other people will entrain with it. I mean, I do this with my kids all the time. There are other specialized inhalation um, exercises you can do that also induce a relaxation response. But the basic formula is 
your exhales longer than inhales should ultimately make you a lot more uh, chill. And then the fifth is palpation. Let me guess. Oh, oh. palpation. Oh, okay. you jumped on it. I was going to palpation. Okay, I want to hear about that. But you know what I was going to guess? What? It's going to totally like be a tangent from what you were going to say. I was going to guess presence or That would pur- come in purpose. the perspective. Yeah, okay. True. I love, bring that, on the peas though. Yeah, I, okay. I, I do have a subset of additional peas that all have to do with pain, with um, pain science. Yeah, pain. We're not going right. to, we'll not do that here. Uh-huh. A whole other like pea trickle theory. Um, but yeah, play. I mean, there are so many different play, peas there you go. can be okay. in. Palpation is like, yours is what? Palpating like with your hands or you're talking about pro- proprioception? Okay, with balls. Okay. Using the balls to feel yourself. I teach hands-off work. Yeah. Yeah. I teach people to auto-regulate, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I'm going to, you know, I did a lot of massage training, but I found I could massage on scale through cues and through tools. And so that's what I do. I am curious. Something just made me think about this a moment ago when we were talking about our previous P about the, the thing with going to sleep and, 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 resting recumbent positions. Do you think that that, I mean, we have a lot of people that fall asleep on the massage table. We assume just because it's so relaxing, but do you think there's uh, another physiological factor going on with what you had mentioned here too, with a whole issue with, you know, the receptors and blood flow and all that kind of thing, potentially being a part of that? Oh, oh my goodness. There's so many factors that go into it. I mean, I mean, there are some people who, like my husband, as soon as he lays down on the couch, it's just like 10, 9, right. 8, 7. I mean, he's just That's out. me too. Yeah. <laughs> so I think some people's, you know, Vegas has such, there's such a strong, like, like push-pull that it's yeah. like he just gets knocked out as soon as he, uh, as soon as he, you know, lays flat. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think we're built, we're built differently and our, our nervous system has different, um, tolerances. Uh, you know, that being said, I also recall, um, um, you know, an incident massaging my husband early on in our relationship where he got what I call the zingies. And you've probably seen this happen on the table where somebody will get, um, just an unchecked sympathetic rush that is, racing through them all of a sudden their brain goes into fight or flight and down his um shoulders and arms and median nerve he was like oh my god i just i can't get rid of this and he was getting um zingies just like when you know when your dog runs laps around the backyard like 90 times and they can't stop that's when the nervous system um first for whatever reason the safe touch um, can sometimes trigger a tremendous defense response. And this is one of the reasons why I, I bring up polylegal theory in the book, because I think it's really helpful to look at it as a lens to understand um, why things like that can happen and then what might be the best strategy to migrate to migrate oneself through that experience and then to be able to reflect on the experience with without feeling like you're crazy or that your body um, hijacked your will mm-hmm. okay you are an expert and have a big following in some fields like fitness and then you have a big social media presence fields that have 
uh, that are very image, image conscious, if you know what I mean. You think? Yeah. <laughs> but tell me something about how you see like the relationship of body image with body hmm. awareness, body awareness. So what's the inside out or outside in paradox or relationship there? Wow. I love that you're an outsider to the fitness industry. And <laughs> How could you tell? You hadn't seen me stand up. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh my gosh. Um, I could do the entire podcast about that alone yeah. as a, as somebody who healed from not one, but two eating disorders um, and works in the fitness centers industry and sees you know, once, once you've gone through addiction, I, I don't, I maybe I'm, I'll just speak for myself. Having gone through addiction, I feel like I have a scarlet letter that I, I see, um, attitudes, behaviors, and expressions that once were code for me, cries for help that nobody saw. Um, but I can see it anyway. So that's, that's my opinion. That's my experience, but I, it's, it's all over the place in the fitness industry. And I, mm. I've made a real point in my um, output to not try to sell um, aesthetics ever um, because I think it's completely demoralizing to all bodies. Um, and there are people that will help you with that. If you want aesthetics, there are experts that will help you with aesthetics. I mean, I know some of the best bodybuilder trainers in the entire planet and they can help you with your aesthetics. I'm going to help you with your feeling, with your feels, and your ability to feel. And guess what? When you do that, there might be a byproduct of shape-shifting, um, but I'm most interested in your range of motion within your respiratory mechanics, and that the lining of your birthday suit is communicating well from the core to the periphery and back again. So that's, that's my real boring um, take on all of it. And yeah, I am, I am definitely, I also live in LA. Uh, I used to do, uh, you know, film work. I do put myself out there on social media, but I try to put out a variety of my own faces so people can see that um, I'm not uh, addicted to makeup or eyebrow grooming, uh, you know. I know, I love, I love what you do, by the way, because it's, you you, it is you and um you're uh, you're younger than me, but you're of the generation where you go, okay, so I'm not looking like I was when I'm 20. You look fantastic, but you're not, you know, you're showing a woman of our generation doing these things in an awesome way. It's got to happen. Yeah. I, and for your listeners, I'm 51 and I'm super proud to have crossed that half century mark. Um, yeah. It's just incredible. Kudos for you. And you talk, and you're also sharing, you know, in your social media feed, you're sharing, again, the algorithms found me, like I told you, and I, you're sharing your daily life with your family. You're, you know, you got the cutest kids in the world, but you're just there with them doing your stuff. You're sharing your own challenges. You're sharing about your, uh, you know, your hip replacement story, those kinds of things. Yes. I'm, I love talking about my hip replacement story <laughs> because it opens up so many different um, pots that I love to to dive into. Um, you know, one is 
that I am I'm an undiagnosed hypermobile body. I've self-diagnosed myself as a hypermobile person, although my orthopedist also diagnosed me as uh, that that was the underlying cause of my need for hip replacement. I'll never forget it. I, I, I had avoided getting imaging in my hip for a long time. I had on again, off again pain in my tensor fascia for probably about seven years, but it was, those were my childbearing years. And I just did not want to have any imaging because I didn't want anything to get in the way of me making babies. I was a late starter. I had my first kid at 42 and my second one at 44. And the, when I finally did have the imaging, you know, I thought I had a torn labrum. Like I thought all things pointed to that. I just had a labral tear and I was just, you know, working around that, but there was no labrum. There was nothing. I mean, it was just decimated bone spurs, um, cam deformation. Oh, what a mess. I have the bone on my desk. If you guys ever want to see it. You got your hip bone. Yeah. I have the best surgeon. He's so cool. Oh, wow. Uh, He's so cool. Um, but yeah, there's really no other, there was no conservative option. Like I was at end stage, hips got to go, other hip mm. is fine. Um, I had no idea I was living with um, such diseased hip because I teach, what do I teach? I teach self-care and pain mitigation through the techniques that I share with role model and yoga tune-up. Um, so I walk into the office, lay down on the table, he walks in, his first five words to me are, so when do you want to schedule? I had never met him before. He just walks in, so when do you want to schedule? It was absolutely the death knell. And then he did a test, he did an orthopedic test. He just circumducted my hip. And he was like, oh, well, there's your underlying condition right there. Hypermobility. It was just like, boom, boom, boom. Okay, when do you want to schedule? And, but, I, but he is very cool. So uh, believe me, there's a, lot more, there's a lot more to his bedside manner. I make him sound gruff, but he's not at all. <clears throat> so yes, it I sounds love- like a it sounds like a kind of confrontation with that uh, reality in a way, or that option. What that meant? Confrontation with that reality. Well, it sounds like the gruffness you're describing sounds like, hey, this is the deal. You're hypermobile, and what the option I have for you is a hip replacement. And so the it was your process of going, okay. I don't know what you expect. I don't know if you expect him to give you options or talk you through some different things like that. But No, I, I guess I didn't even uh, un, uh, expect a, a clinical hunch, right? So that was his clinical hunch. We've never done any testing um, on, gotcha. on my joints. I've never done the, I mean, I could self bait and score myself, but um, I study very closely all of the um, literature regarding EDS and hypermobility. I have a, a deep interest in all of that because of my own my own suspicions about my my body and my life. Um, but you know, I go to the Fascia Research Congress, I listen to the, the researchers, and uh, I I try to do my own personal practice to make sure I maintain strength, um, and then also address this rising tide of anxiety that I have succumbed to along with the rest of society over these last few years. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Porges. I mean, he's, his work is on my wish list to find a way into here on the podcast. And interestingly, some of his first research when he was developing heart rate variability was with a rolfer, John Cottingham, who was also a professor. They were colleagues. And so he did a research project on rolfing subjects 
where John was doing different rolfing moves and he'd measure their heart rate variability. This was like back in the early 90s, I believe it was, to see like, is this a valid measure and what happens in body work? That was some of his first tests, from some of Stephen Borges' first tests. And the, the, their takeaway was that, well, the move that seems to make the biggest difference was the pelvic lift, which is like just a hand under the sacrum and a little bit of traction there. And there were lasting effects. They were able to measure effects in the control, I think, for a week afterwards. Incredible. Nicole. So you wonder if the it's the pelvic lifting, it you know, creates that gentle slope, right? Yeah. So we, we're like seven, eight degrees um, higher than yeah. normal, right? Interesting. I mean, I'm just trying. And, and back then we thought sacral nerves were parasympathetic. Now there's a big question about that, but still it had that vagal tone response. Hey, and I thought of another P for you. Sure. I think it's I think it's your playlist, honestly, that helps. I think it's the context we set for what we do. I think it's like the whole maybe it's part of your place, P. It's part of that whole uh, environment that we help people into. That way, it makes some of these differences you're talking about. And there is just that inside out piece as well. I'm still with the perspective. I can just think about 15 P's under that one. How important that is, and how refreshing it is to see you representing that in this very image conscious field to say, listen, no, it's about, it's not just about what you're seeing in the mirror and what you're, how you're sculpting your body. It's not just body by Jill, it's body by your breath. Mm -hmm. It's really mm -hmm. on the inside out way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I would say that there are, there are, you know, I've been, I've been in the fitness space since I was 20. So, I mean, I started teaching yoga at, the park services, I should not have been hired by, um, by the park services when I was 20 or 21, um, going to school in Chicago. And at the same time, I was also teaching um, water aerobics at the YW. And I would play Peggy Lee on a cassette tape. And all the women in the water aerobics class were well over 60. I was completely unqualified to be teaching either of these groups. Um, but the people that showed up at the park district for yoga and the people that showed up in the water for water aerobics, they weren't interested in a tiny waist and um, stronger glutes. Like, I mean, they probably were interested in stronger glutes, but on the aesthetic level, nobody, I just don't recall people sharing that interest with me. And maybe it's just what I brought to the space um, that, you know, we're really here to get to know our ourselves Mm -hmm. and to discover something about mm -hmm. ourselves. So um, maybe I'm, you know, I think maybe the outsiders to the fitness space, they see the madness on social media or or the glamour that's portrayed in uh, magazines. But those of us grinding it out as instructors, we uh, really offer this group space where people can share joy and share the joy of movement and share the joy of discovery. And that in and of itself, gathering people together um, increases vagal tone. Like we are, uh, we sell the ability for your, in, you know, the intrinsic rise of hedonic tone in the body. Um, and it's a celebration in, in that change happens every time you, you gather like that. Um, so I, um, yeah, I'm just not in the space where they're going after chisel and I guess drizzle and dripple. I, I don't know what they're nice. going after, yeah, but, great. um, believe me, no, the, the, 
the fitness space is vast and there are a lot of us in, in here with a, a very deep mindful agenda um, to really help people with their pain and improve movement and not just get after tighter buns. That's uh, that's such an important thing. It might be a great place to wrap it up. And I got one more wrap-up question. What, anything else you want to ask? No, I was just going to, you know, as, as you were talking about that, Jill, it was, just, it was striking to me thinking about like, I mean, that's what fitness is. I mean, fitness is really about your body's well-being in your life uh, regardless. And it has been, unfortunately, quite co-opted by the visual aesthetics uh, as a more predominant part than, than really about physical health and well-being, I think, for a lot of people. So kudos to you for keeping that, holding that flame going there. Thanks, Winnie. Mm -hmm. Okay. Your new book is Body by Breath. Uh, how Could you sum up for us or anything else you want to say in closing about how it can be useful or relevant to our audience who is who are engaged in hands-on work what would you say about that in closing yes uh, the the massage therapy community has been a very robust part of the ideation and creation of my own methodology i have adapted massage strokes essentially for self-application and as massage therapists the amount of body stress that can go into a day-to-day -day, um, office, you know, office setting or clinical setting for you is substantial. You know, ankles, feet, low back, hands, wrists, neck, um, and just even the stress of the interpersonal work that you're doing with clients. I see the work. I mean, I train so many massage therapists for to have this adjunct offering within their clinics so that they can take small groups through. Um, you know, a hand and foot series or neck and jaw or um, breath mechanic work. Because sometimes it's actually better if they do it themselves than you do it on them um, in terms of it having a lasting effect, right? Because it's their nervous system um, through your cueing or through your direction, remodeling them. So I'm, I'm sorry, I split into four different directions here. But one, as a massage therapist or rolfer uh, or, or any manual, therapist, it's very helpful to have a little reset between clients to address your own uh, structure mm -hmm. and your own, your, and also getting you back to sort of tabula rasa, getting you back to a, a, a state where you can tolerate the next client's stuff that they bring you. So this is kind of like palate cleansing neurologically from your own body through your own, um, through your own structure. But it just so happens to give you this incredible um lift literally you're using your you know body by breath methodology or body by breath um, practices to give yourself a state change and also a structural change the tools that are used in the book are breathe roll move and non-sleep deep rest and those four tools really compound to give you um, in whatever order whatever sequence you want to have to have that state change um, addressed so that you can be your best self. So one is your own self in between clients or for your own um, rigor of practice. And then two, to have something else for homework to offer your clients. 
that is less stressful on your body. Um, I read on Facebook this morning, Till, that you had done um, some work with the Google massage staff uh, pre-pandemic. Well, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Right. And yeah. um, you put up an article that like more than almost a half of them were laid off in this last round of, of cutoff of layoffs. I worked with this staff multiple times in the pandemic to teach them how to work with their uh, clients, with the you know employees of Google through the camera. How do I, because I can't touch, because it's a pandemic and we don't know when we can be in the room together again, but I still have to service my teams and the employees who are in deep distress working in their homes where there's children running around and their productivity is, you know, going down the tubes. Um, how do I still give them the massage they need? Well, that is where the role model and body by breath work comes in because you can cue, skillfully cue another body, another being into their own best self-treatment. Um, I mean, we were really made, my work was made for that moment. And um, it was just interesting to see your post this morning because I forgot about it. I forgot that we had worked with, you know, with this team um, and certified them in role model. It just really bumps me out, all those individuals that, you know, because when you're a massage therapist, you are just a giver. You are, you do so much to provide help and caretaking for those in your care. And, um, and you know how necessary it is for, yeah people's productivity. And so it just really bums me out for those people and their families, um, but also for the, you know, employees that no longer have that service at the ready for their own stresses that they're dealing with. Yeah. I would, you know, also just want to say for for everybody listening to, to really think about this, because you said some things here that I, I think really are important for a lot of people to think about. You're one of the very high uh, or, you know, prominent reasons for people leaving our profession is physical burnout. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with the self-care piece. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of emphasis in self-care about teaching people, you know, correct body mechanics and all this kind of stuff for the work that they're doing. But a lot of what you're talking about here, I think, is really valuable. What you mentioned, just like that short time in between clients or the things that you do mm-hmm. with taking some of these processes that you can do to to really take care of yourself and give yourself the longevity um, through some of these practices. I think they would be really helpful for a lot of practitioners. Oh, absolutely. And like I said, we have many massage therapists um, and PTs uh, who train in our methods and that's exactly what they do. I mean, I've learned from them, you know, how did they apply this work for their own health and longevity. And one of the big add-ons that has been a really big boon to, to many of them is, is offering, you know, small group classes where they're not having to bend over people. They're not having to dig a thumb here and there. And you can, again, massage on scale um, and empower people. That's great. Right? Empower people. Yeah. Empower people. Self-care. How, how can people find out more about your work? Well, the book is on Amazon. I don't know when this is going to air, but the February, book February 22nd. Oh, so February 28th yeah. is when the book drops. And actually, we are, for all people who pre-order, I will be teaching a free online one-hour class to all the pre-orders. 
Um, and so you can find out about that by going to our bodybybreath.com website. I mean, my company is TuneUp Fitness, so you can find out about it through TuneUp Fitness also, but probably the best shortcut is just to type in the, the name of the book, bodybybreath.com, and then you can find out how to get in on that as well as um, some other giveaways that we're doing, which one of them includes the training of Body by Breath methodology. So doing a three-day online training and one lucky winner will uh, win a seat in that course, which is both interactive as well as recorded. And that's happening in late March. Um, people can find out about me through social media. As you mentioned, I have been pretty delinquent in the last week or so. I'm under another deadline, but uh, I'm the Jill Miller on Instagram. My company tune up fitness is also on Instagram and you can find us at the same handles on Facebook, I think. And we do have about 500 teachers worldwide that teach yoga tune-up and role model method. And so you can also find local teachers. It's always wonderful to work directly with teachers. Um, and then because of the timing of this podcast, you can come and work with me directly. I'm taking the book on tour. I'm going to cities all over the U.S. and Canada, including Los Gatos, Larkspur, Houston, Atlanta, um, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., Toronto, and a retreat that is that sold out in um, in Ontario. But um, I'm trying to get my my roadshow back up after the pandemic, and I'm going to help people, you know, breathe. And of course, Los Angeles, where I live. We will all right. put all those links in the show notes and on the website. I'm going to do our closer sp- Closing sponsor, and then we'll just uh, we'll say goodbye for the day. The Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP Associated Body Work and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, quick reference apps, online scheduling, and payments with Pocket Suite, and much more. And ABMP CE courses, podcast, and Massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including Till and myself. The Thinking Practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. We would like to say a thank you to all of our sponsors and to all the listeners who joined us here today. Uh, you can stop by our sites for the video, show notes, transcripts, and any extras. You can find that from uh, my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, on your site, where is that? Advanced-trainings.com. Uh, questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about, you can email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. Uh, you can find that under my name at Whitney Lowe. And Till, yours? I am Till Luca, and you can rate us on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people find the show. And, oh, by the way, you know, when I'm having a bad day, you know what I do? I go to Apple Podcasts and I read the reviews people are leaving us with me. Oh, that's so nice. Sweet. It's are they nice actually good? They're actually good reviews. There's some read. good ones there. <laughs> if they're not good, I just scroll to the next one to read it on my bad day, but it's helpful. Yeah. So thanks everybody for those little tidbits. Yeah. Or you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And please do share the word and tell a friend. Jill Miller, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I'm a fan of your podcast. So this has been really a really cool thing to be able to talk with you both. Good. Thanks again for being here. It was great to, to see you again. <laughs>